The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So the, the practice in daily life um, tends to be more difficult because we tend to get involved in the content of what we're doing and it's, it's more difficult to be aware of our responses, our reactions to what's happening, to be mindful of them. And yet if we do practice or we explore the possibility of being mindful of, of what's, not only what's happening but how we're responding to it, then there, there can often be a little bit of a choice about how we respond. And so this is part of the purpose for, for this exploration. We cultivate mindfulness often in a silent sitting posture, and that doesn't give us a lot of uh, practice with being with the content. In fact, in the sitting posture, we tend to uh, ignore the content. And so part of what we'll be exploring this week is how do we engage with being mindful, being present with the content, with the thoughts, with the conversations, with what we're doing. How do we explore that? And how might it allow us to um, have a new response? At least letting the mindfulness uh, offer a little place or an avenue where we might have a slightly different or, or largely different response to what's happening in our lives. So the, the, the week begins this afternoon with this three-and-a-half-hour time during which I'll offer some suggestions for how to practice in daily life. And we'll do a little bit of sitting, a little bit of walking, and um, I'll offer some instructions, and there'll be some discussion. And there'll be a break somewhere in the middle. Um, so the, the format of the retreat, for those of you who are not um, familiar with it, is that during the week, every day during the week, we'll meet both in the morning and the evening. Or let's say, I'll be here both in the morning and the evening from 7.30 to 9 a.m. and from 7.30 to 9 p.m. And um, since you've showed up today, um, I, I do require people um, to have attended this day or to already be familiar with the practices that we teach, that I teach for this week in order to attend during the, we- the week. But given that you've come today, you're welcome to attend during the week as it works for your schedule. Um, during the week, meeting 7.30 to 9 a.m. in the mornings, it will largely be um, discussion. We'll, we'll sit together. I may offer a few suggestions or some instructions, but largely it'll be a discussion about what's happening for you in your, in your practice in your daily life. And this tends to be a pretty supportive format for um, helping people to begin to see where are they missing. This is a lot of what, what gets pointed out is where, where are you missing these opportunities to be mindful in your daily life. And then in the evenings, on both Monday and Thursday evening, the retreat will be blended with or integrated with the usual sitting um, schedule, the usual Monday night sitting and talk and the usual Thursday night sitting and talk. I will offer those those gatherings. I will be giving the talk and the talk will be on a topic related to daily life practice. The rest of the um, evenings, the Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday evenings will be the same format as the morning sessions, the the discussion um, session. Many of the evenings this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and 
maybe even Friday, I think, um, we'll be sharing the space with some other groups. And so I think on, on Wednesday, we'll, we'll definitely be out in the community hall and we'll close the, the, um, the doors between the two spaces so that they'll be quiet. It's, it's a pretty good soundproof door, so we'll, we'll have some, some privacy um, in, on the evenings where we're sharing the space. Um, and then on Saturday, we'll have a day long. And again, that is open to the entire community. It's not strictly for those who've attended the week-long retreat, but it also seems to be for those attending the week a really good way to, um, to really settle into what you've learned for the week. But again, for this particular week, I try to leave the, for this particular style of non-residential retreat that I offer, I try to leave the format so that it, it's not uh, required to attend any piece of it, except for attending today if you're going to attend during the week. So that's the only um, attendance requirement I have during the week. And so you're welcome to come and go for the rest of the week as it works for you. Um, there are other non-residential retreats I do that I do ask for a commitment, but on this week, it's more open. So given that it is a retreat, first of all, I'm curious how many of you are planning to um, attend during the week. Okay, so quite a few of you. Um, and given that it is a retreat, um, what the way I like to begin this day is with a little bit of a, of a reminder about what the orientation is from the perspective of our practice. The... the um, when we do residential retreats, we typically have a little bit of a of a ritual to enter into the retreat together to kind of create a container that we agree this this is how we 're practicing together and this is um, a traditional Buddhist ritual that creates a, both an ethical and a practice container for for the week and so it's it 's about the refuges and the precepts. And so to begin, this is just a kind of a reminder in a way for us about why we're practicing and how we agree to come together as a community. And so the, the why we're practicing really is, is framed in the refuges, the refuge in the Buddha, the refuge in the Dharma, the refuge in the Sangha. Really, the word refuge points to what's being um, connected to here with the, this part of the of the ritual. It's pointing to what, what is it that will help create safety in community and safety for us in our practice. The word refuge meaning something like safety. So the, um, the traditional refuges, the refuge in the Buddha, is, um, is a refuge essentially in this capacity that we have to wake up. I mean, what we typically take refuge in in our lives is not our capacity to wake up, but rather um, things happening in the world or things that we acquire, relationships that we have. We tend to look for safety in, in the external world in terms of creating conditions for ourselves that hopefully we feel like we can land with some safety with. And the Buddha realized that the, that that as a place for refuge as a place for ultimate safety is not very reliable because conditions are so unreliable 
we can at times con- create conditions that come together for us that create a sense of security or safety. We have a home, we have um, friends and family, and yet, uh, you know, just the the situation on the the Big Island these days is just really reminding me again of how how unreliable things like this are. You know that. And and the you know a fire happened in Alameda last night that just destroyed a home you know so there are there are things that happen that when we take refuge in the things in the world and situations in the world it's just not a reliable place for refuge and so these traditional refuges are kind of a pointer to something that's a little bit deeper a little bit potentially more reliable and one of those the refuge in the Buddha to me points to kind of the refuge in our capacity to be awake. The word Buddha even means awake. That's, it, that's, it, that's its derivation. The word Buddha means awake. And so this points to um, that we have, as human beings, a very natural capacity to know what's happening while it's happening. That this, this um, it's, it's a human capacity and the Buddha was a human being and he found this uh, this path the Dharma the second refuge he found this path and uh, recognized that there is a great deal of freedom and ease and peace of heart that can be found by engaging with this capacity that we have to awaken and yet the the capacity to be awake itself we might think of that as being a natural human capacity for mindfulness, that itself isn't quite enough because that capacity we have to know what's happening while it's happening might be directed to many different purposes. It might be directed to um, getting something that we want or, I mean, the kind of a, a classic example is a thief in a home stealing things, might be incredibly mindful of what was happening, very mindful of their movements in the house and very carefully stepping and reaching so as not to make any noise. And yet that kind of mindfulness is not going to lead to the happiness that the Buddha is pointing to, that ease of heart, because the motivation behind that mindfulness of the thief is a motivation of greed, or potentially of aversion. And that's what's being reinforced. This is a big piece the Buddha pointed to, is that whatever we, whatever our motivation is, whatever's kind of underlying the reasons why we're acting, this is what we're cultivating. And so he really pointed to looking at, looking underneath, to what are the motivations? Why are we acting? And so this is a lot of his teaching, his framing of the Dharma, the second uh, refuge. And he frames wise view and an orientation towards this capacity to be awake, not towards getting something that we want, but towards understanding what it means to be a human being alive and a, as a human being. What does it mean to be a human being that's experiencing things? And so this means that we turn our attention to our human experience in and of itself, curious about what is this being human? 
So this doesn't maybe sound like a lot, but it's a huge shift because this means, for instance, if we are noticing some human experience, say a frustration or confusion or anger, the curiosity is not something like, well, how do I get rid of this frustration? What can I do? It's not to be mindful of this frustration or confusion or anger in order to get rid of it, but rather in order to understand it. And that understanding is pointing to a, not an intellectual understanding, but an understanding of the human experience of confusion, the human experience of anger, the human experience of frustration. So this is a very different orientation than we usually have with respect to our responses to the world. We don't tend to have frustration arise in our mind and think, oh, frustration, how interesting. Let me feel this. Let me notice this. Let me explore this. We usually think, oh, something's frustrating. How do I fix this? How do I change this? And not to say that we don't take action in the world. This is an important piece to recognize that the Buddhist teachings are not about non-action, but they are about looking at, are we acting from Wholesome motivations from love, from wisdom, from compassion, from joy, from kindness, from generosity, rather than from aversion, hatred, fear, confusion. And so the, the, the wholesome emotions can also be motivating for us. So the, um, the Dharma, the, the refuge in the Dharma is really pointing to a refuge in this um, this understanding, well, this is one way to look at it, this understanding that points us in a new way of meeting our experience. Another way to look at the, the word dharma is um, basically is what's the truth of what's happening? What is actually going on for us? And this at a very deep level, at a very fundamental level, what's going on is that there is changing experience happening and that we tend to try to kind of stop that changing experience in order to find happiness in unreliable conditions. And so the the coming into alignment with the truth that things are impermanent, unreliable, and a lot of the times uncontrollable. And so this is a This is a hard one for us to really take this in. And yet the the teachings of the Buddha, another word that means dharma, what the Buddha taught, the teachings offer us some very practical things, places to start this curiosity about our direct experience. We begin to recognize that when we are experiencing frustration, anger, confusion, for example, there tends to be, there's something going on in there that is related to um, wanting things not to be impermanent or unreliable or uncontrollable. So the, the, the frustration, for instance, might be a reaction to things being, the, the experience of things being uncontrollable and not wanting it to be that way, resisting that it's that way. And so whenever we're suffering, there's kind of a pointer in a way for us to begin to open to these truths. And so this very simple task the Buddha points us to of noticing what's happening while it's happening as human experience. 
It's very powerful and very profound. And typically we only engage in that so much when we're sitting quietly with our eyes closed. And yet there's so much we can learn when we're engaged in the world about what it means to be a human being in relationship in the world. And then this actually points to the third refuge, the refuge in Sangha, where this brings in this quality of relationship, of of community. And the... Um, some of the teachings point to the the fact that the the process of engaging in this path is challenging and that we need support. It's very rare for somebody to be able to, to walk this path by themselves without support. And so this is the, the refuge in Sangha, Sangha meaning community, that we rely on each other And we also rely on the lineage of teachings, the lineage of people who have practiced in this way and had some degree of of understanding that we can take some refuge in, in this community of people. And so these are, this is kind of what we, um, recognize as being important for us, these refuges refuge in the Buddha, that we, we do have this capacity to awaken, the refuge in the Dharma, that we awaken to something very fundamental, given some very um, skillful tools that help us see those truths, and that we have support in community to do this. Also related to the community is that we, um, the community, uh, the Sangha, uh, who comes together to practice in this way, we, we kind of agree to particular ethical modes of conduct, that we agree to engage in precepts, in kind of guidelines for us in terms of how to live in the world. And this, again, brings relationship into the picture. There's so much of the Buddhist teaching that speaks to relationship, it's not just about sitting quietly with your eyes closed. And this is a big part of it, this aspect of, of um, ethical commitment that we agree to uh, refrain from um, harming, harming, our, harming other living beings, that we um, agree to refrain from taking what's not given, that we agree to... Uh, refrain from creating harm through our sexuality, that we agree to refraining from false speech and agree to refraining from intoxicants. So these um, these precepts, I mean, we, we, uh, we often, when I talk about these precepts, I often talk about them in a more extensive way, but I'll just point to a few pieces here in terms of um, what we're what we're pointing to. So, you know, in some ways, this first one, the, the refraining from uh, harming living beings, from taking life, essentially. This, in our retreat practice, does extend to harming all creatures, not harming all creatures, bugs, um, any, uh, any things that seem, you know, small and insignificant, spiders and ants and all these things. Um, And so what I would um, 
suggested, I mean, and often these precepts are looked at also as what I could call training guidelines or training rules. And so to explore them, not as hard and fast, like cut and dried, thou shalt not, but more if something is arising here, if something is arising in which you are intending to create harm, to look at that, to use it as a mindfulness bell. You know, there are some gray areas here that we have to make choices um, sometimes. Um, at one point I had, uh, I, I thought I had a bed bug infestation in my home and decided to treat that infestation with, not with poison, but with um, something that would um, make it inhospitable for the, the bed bugs to, to live in the, in the house. Um, and my, I mean, I thought about this a lot. I thought about it and it's, I thought, you know, if I don't treat these bed bugs, these bugs propagate really fast. They expect, you know, their, their population will grow really fast and they will move into my neighbor's house because I live in a condominium and they'll move into my neighbor's neighbor's house. And I, I knew that my, my neighbors would not live with bed bugs. It was hard enough for me to live with them. And that there would be a lot of killing going on if I didn't treat the infestation when it was really small. And so that was how I worked with it. You know, I explored it. I, I, uh, and, and I do believe in, in, in some fashion, you know, that the, the choice there to, um, to treat my home for bed bugs was not without consequences. I mean, there, there, this was an action that created harm. I could feel it. I could feel there was immediate sense of it not feeling good to do this. And so there, there, there are some consequences. It, it doesn't mean that if you come up with some kind of a rationalization about things that there aren't consequences. And yet sometimes there are trade-offs. Another one for the... Um, you know, the second precept around not lying. Um, sometimes, I mean, there, there, are, there are certain kinds of, of lies that we might tell. We think we're telling a, a white lie in order that somebody won't be hurt about something. Um, and yet it might make sense to see if there's some way to respond to that situation where it wouldn't be a lie, where it would not be a lie. But there are some other situations that I've reflected on. For instance, you know, the time... Um, um, in Nazi Germany, when people were hiding um, people of the Jewish faith in their homes, and you know Nazis come and knock on the door and search through their homes, they were lying. You know, no, I don't have. I'm not hiding people of the Jewish faith in my home. I hope I would have the courage to do that. I hope I would have the courage to lie in that situation to protect their lives. So sometimes there are these kinds of trade-offs. And yet again, the, the choice to do that has, you know, that has an effect. And so that's, that's something that's like, okay, yes, there may be consequences of that lie. And yet I'm willing, I hope I would be willing to choose those consequences. So these, I, I like to think of these precepts as really an investigation 
not just as a, oh, this is a rule, don't do it, do it this way, don't do it that way, but really when you see these things arising, to look at it, to investigate it. Another one that often comes up is around the, the, um, the intoxicants, refraining from intoxicants that cloud the mind. Um, sometimes people take this precept, the, the, the way it's worded leaves some ambiguity, um, you know, even in English, it, it, it can be framed something like refrain from intoxicants and then it could be refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness where that framing of it is that you refrain from intoxicating yourself to the point of intoxication. You refrain from taking intoxicants to the point of intoxication. Or it could be framed as refraining from intoxicants, comma, which lead to heedlessness, which intoxicate the mind. A little comma and a change of word completely changing the way that this is understood. And you know, there's some ambiguity in the, in the way the poly is understood. And so some people take it very uh, firmly, not taking any uh, intoxicants. And so for myself, I explored this in my own um, in my own practice, you know, what, not, rather than taking it as a firm, don't do this, I began to explore what's the effect of a glass of wine, for instance, on my mind. And began to discover, this was pretty early in my practice, I began to discover that a glass of mind, wine really affected my ability to, to meditate that evening. And not only that, it affected me the next morning. And you know, that didn't stop it immediately, but over time as my, the value that I placed in the clarity of mind and the, the, the real understanding and clarity that I was gaining through this practice led to a very natural weakening and letting go of the use of, you know, having a glass of wine even at dinner, even, not even to the point of intoxication. And so to, to, to explore these as, not as hard and fast rules so much, but, but more as curiosity. That any time one of these comes up, it can be, we can think of it as kind of a mindfulness bell. And so what I'd encourage for this week, for those of you who are sitting the retreat, to really think about these as precepts that you're taking for the week. You know, to, to explore them at a very profound level this week. And so we'll take these together um, as uh, a community here. And for the, um, the refuges, we'll take these in the poly. I think many of you know them. Um, um, but we'll do it call and response for the first part. Um, actually, we'll just do it call and response for the whole thing. Um, and then in terms of the precepts, we'll take those in English. The first part of the refuges is uh, a kind of an homage to the Buddha. It's just kind of acknowledging our um, our sense of the Buddha as being um, worthy of respect. And the um, this, the second part is um, in three parts. I go for refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. For the second time, I go for refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And then the third time, I go for refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha.
The first um, part I'll do a few words at a time and then the second part I'll do the line at a time. Namo tasa, namo tasa, bhagavato, bhagavato, arahato, arahato, sama, sambuddhasa, sama, sambuddhasa, namo tasa, namo tasa, bhagavato, Bhagavato Arahato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Bhagavato Arahato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang saranang gachami, Buddhang saranang gachami, Dhammang saranang gachami, Dhammang saranang gachami, Sangang saranang gachami, Sangang saranang gachami, Dutiampi buddhang saranang gachami, Dutiampi buddhang saranang gachami, Dutiampi damang saranang gachami, Dutiampi samang saranang gachami, Dutiampi sangang saranang gachami, Dutiampi sangang saranang gachami, Tatiampi buddhang saranang gachami, Tatiampi buddhang saranang gachami, Tatiampi damang saranang gachami, Tatiampi damang saranang gachami, Tatiampi sangang saranang gachami, Tatiampi sangang saranang gachami. I undertake the training. I undertake the to refrain from killing living beings. Refrain from killing. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the training to refrain from creating harm with sexuality. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. And so we'll sit together now. Um, Do you need a stretch break before we start? Just a a 30-second stand-up, sit down. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. How many of you are um, 
are new to meditation. Anybody not done meditation before at all? Okay, so it'll be a silent sitting. We'll just settle ourselves together, practicing in your usual way. Um, And uh, it'll be a shortish sitting, about 20 minutes, and then we'll... um, We'll talk about doing some walking meditation. Oh, yeah. Um, If you um, are having some difficulty hearing, there are some hearing-assisted devices on the shelf just outside the the meditation hall. Um, I wanted to turn it off for a second.